0: Hey everyone, this week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by G-Technology and FilmTools.com. G-Technology is a leading brand for professional-grade storage solutions for the media and entertainment industries. Since their inception in 2004, G-Technology has consistently offered reliable, high-performance hard drives. If you're in the market for some new storage, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out the hottest product offerings from G-Technology. And now, on to the show. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hulfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking to John Axelrad, A.C.E., and Lee Haugen. John has been an editor since the late 1990s and has edited films including We Own the Night, Crazy Heart, Something Borrowed, Krampus, The Lost City of Z, and Papillon. Lee Haugen has several films over the last six years, including Repentance, Dope, and Miss Stevens, and has co edited with John on Lost City of Z and Papillon. Today I'm speaking with them about their latest collaboration with each other and director James Gray on the film Ad Astra. I ask John and Lee what they're working on now. John Axelrod answers first, Lee answers second.
1: I'm working on a Lionsgate movie starring Janelle Monae. It's uh, an untitled socio-political thriller but it is titled they're just keeping it under wraps got it all righty and i love janelle monet dirty computer
2: she's She's great great. yeah and i'm on a am on an independent film uh called keyhole garden starring zoe saldano sweet wow
0: how are you guys monitoring in your edit
1: suites Any of your cutting rooms? Uh, In terms of the monitor? Were you monitoring 5.1? Were you doing LCR? Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, I'm now working in 5.1. I absolutely love it. There were limitations for this film because they wanted us in a very secure environment and we were at Pivotal Post in Hollywood. And the rooms were really small and the configuration didn't work for 5.1 so i'm embarrassed to say we did not do 5.1 we did lcr and we both had um uh the oh. L- lg uh 65 inch oled which i love so much i personally bought one for my living room
0: <laughs> i was i used the exact same monitor on although i was on a 55 on uh, on my last feature there's a opening kind of revelation scene not to give anything away but it's the beginning of the movie where brad pitt's character is being told all these important things that are then going to propel the movie for the rest of the way i noticed that a lot of it was played on his reactions do you guys want to talk about the importance of playing lines on or off
2: this being uh, the third film that uh, that I've worked on with James and and John it's always our number one priority is to understand the point of view of of the main character and get inside of his head and get inside of what he's processing and thinking and and it's not so important to have the dialogue on camera as it is to find out how that is the dialogue is affecting our main character as uh, for Brad and so that scene was uh was a challenging scene because there was a lot of information that was given out but our goal was to to make sure we knew how Brad was reacting to every single thing that was said and to kind of go through this whole revolutionary thought process that, that being told this information that totally changed the way he felt about his dad, and 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 how things were going to be going forward for the rest of the film.
1: James is a very point of view driven filmmaker, and so his his characters, uh, when we edit with him, he's always saying, "Where's the point of view? Where's the point of view?" So, you know, we've been conditioned that uh, we follow our main character, and and James wanted to get interior to his thoughts as best as possible, and playing so much of it over his reactions, um, I think set it up about the significance of his father, how traumatic it was for him, you know, how the revelation that he still may be alive affected him. But it was the through line throughout the film is to stay with Brad and james is very neoclassical in his approach he likes to work in a very linear chronological fashion and staying with roy as a character was paramount to that goal
0: uh you mentioned point of view and that's definitely something they think is strong with a lot of people a lot of directors want to know hey what you know or editors want to know where that point of view did the point of view change or were you uh always on the point of view? Or did he always want you on the point of view of Brad's character?
1: Pretty or much, he? yeah. Uh, you know, he he was so... Um, I mean, if you look at the film, it's pretty much uh, the story of Roy, Roy McBride. And just like Lost City of Z was the story of Percy Fawcett. James... He's not one for irony, he's not one for um, multiple points of view. The film I'm working on right now is very, very different. It's a little more omniscient point of view, and we do shift quite a lot. But James is purely focused on the main character and how the other characters interact with him and uh, influence that, that main character's thinking throughout the film.
2: That was one of the things that, it, as we were going through the process, we always had to keep that in mind because we wanted to send our audience on this journey uh, to the edge of the solar system with Brad. Um, there is one shot that we do change point of view, um, and it was on purpose. After going through the whole journey, there's one shot of Ruth after uh, she drops him off at the message to Mars, where we stay with her and the camera dollies back with her. and. Yeah, and that was, that was totally done on purpose because it was kind of a, a, a warning to be to the audience, you know, subconsciously saying, hey, this person's going to be an important character um, coming up. But without tipping too much of the information, it just was more of a, a subtle thing, a shift in point of view. And that was the only time. And also, it, you know,
1: because it stood out by itself, it, it was kind of the only big break and I think um, was more powerful as a result. To explain that
0: to the audience who hasn't seen the movie without giving away anything, uh, this character, Ruth, uh, is walking down a hallway with uh, Roy, Brad Pitt's character, and somebody else meets him, and Roy and the other guy walk away, and instead of staying with the people that you would think you would stay with, the camera turns and goes with her as she leaves them. So that's that's the difference, that's the change. That's really interesting. Lee, have you done uh, films, or is your current film one where you feel like you can or need to switch perspective?
2: My current film is definitely one that changes point of view uh, quite a bit. It's 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 set up with six main characters that shifting through time and perspective and point of view throughout the whole film, intercutting between all of them. So it's it's almost the complete opposite of At Astra, <laughs> in a way, but it's also a fun challenge to. To in order to keep your audience engaged and and care about your characters, with that astro, that was number one thing is we need our audience to understand him and care about him and and root for him on this journey. And so when you have at least for me for this film, when we have different characters all set up, different places, we really need to tie them all together and make sure the audience cares about each one of them, especially right away, and then and then allow the story to unfold as it does.
0: The other. Th- thing uh, i talk about obviously a lot is structure and did the structure change at all from uh, like the opening scene i believe is uh of roy's character taking kind of a personality test or a psychology psychological test is that the way the movie always started or did you feel like that better put the audience in with him You guys are both smiling.
1: This, you know, I want to say like James, to his credit, you know, he's writer-director and he co-wrote this with Ethan Gross, but every film I've done with him, and it's been five up to now, and um, he's very willing to do a complete rewrite in post-production. So he's not precious about the written word. Um, He allows the actors to bring what they bring to the story, which ultimately transforms what was written on the page either through ad libs or just an actor having an idea of working within the space the framework of the script so post production being the final rewrite it was very fluid you know there was no structure that we were guided to and i do think it did change quite a bit from the script so we experimented quite a lot and james being The meticulous filmmaker he is, Um, we tried almost every variation um, mathematically possible uh, in putting the story together. And so the film began in many different ways. Um, They did some additional shooting at the end, which I think was the big breakthrough, especially for the ending, You know, this was kind of the consensus the production team came up with working on a studio movie. There's a lot of collaboration going on. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think we finally got it working to where everyone was satisfied and it best served the story.
0: Got it. And it seemed like although it's a linear story, the guy, you know, gets on a spaceship and goes, you know, away there were a lot of opportunities to change the structure, uh, various scenes that you could easily move <clears throat> around. Was that a, the challenge or the uh, the, the fun thing? Or <laughs> talk to me about that, uh, uh, changing things.
2: Yeah, some of the things I think that changed and we shifted around quite a bit to to try different options uh, were the psych evaluations because those were things that allowed us to give the audience insight into where Brad was and... and where he was at at specific points in time and video messages as well. But we were able to manipulate them sometimes to, to help us out and to uh, heighten the tension or to put us in a place to remind people what Brad is going through at that time.
0: Uh, the other thing that I noticed uh, watching it was that there's big action set pieces and there's also much more intimate... Uh, kind of heady in your head in your brain space in, in Roy's brain space kind of pieces did you find that you needed to manipulate those to keep the movie from dragging at any one point or you know trying to keep all the action spread out a little bit or
1: well I mean this this film was a particular challenge um, especially for James you know some people have said that this is um, you know a beautiful film filled with wonderful production value, but at its heart is a very simple story about the heart. And throughout the film, the further we venture into space, the deeper we dive into the subconscious mind. The film itself, we're tackling existential issues about mankind's place in the cosmos and reflections on who we are as a human race, um, being about identity and how we relate to each other. And those are very meta concepts that, I mean, how do you really portray that in a feature film, especially a film that you want to be somewhat commercial for a mass audience? The action sequences were strategically placed throughout. We wanted to start off with a bang, which was the fall from the space antenna, and then uh, the lunar rover chase. The climbing of the rocket, I mean, that's more of a hypnotic, almost dream... Uh, Sequence, in my opinion. I think, you know, if you look at the subtext of Roy getting into the subconscious and us diving into the subconscious, I mean, his diving under the water, the cooling liquid under the rocket, I mean, it's almost uh, intended to be like a dreamlike sequence. He dives down, the subconscious mind as we dream gives us almost like superpowers in a way. He climbs a rocket, you know, to reach his father. So... Later in the film, it definitely becomes more um, metaphysical. Um, the whole story is mythological and uh, you know hopefully the action sequences are paced in a way that it fits within the more hypnotic qualities of the film
2: mm-hmm.
0: yep
1: anything from you on that Lee or no
2: I mean John covered quite a bit of it I think uh, like he said, we wanted to start out with a bang and have some fun with you know have some crazy interesting things for the audience to enjoy. And then, um, you know, as, as we go through the journey, we also, space travel can be so unpredictable that you never know uh, what's going to happen out there. And that's part of the other things, uh, without spoiling anything, as you go on this journey, space is a terrifying place and um, a lot of bad things can happen in, in a quick amount of time. And, and so those were, those other set pieces and other things that happen. Um, on his journey kind of as a warning sign of should we really be going out this far as human race and and is this a good idea as you said there's a
0: bunch of big action sequences but there's also a lot of narration did you guys find yourselves having to scratch that kind of stuff or rewrite stuff in post with the director talk to me a little bit about the 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 use of narration throughout the film
1: so while not part of the original script, um, the voice over narration was discussed between James and Brad, uh, both during pre-production and during production, that uh, Brad would kind of do a stream of conscious recording of the character's thoughts. And we, we didn't have that as part of the script stage, so we edited the film without it, and then this was later added in post. Uh, Brad came in a couple times and uh, did a lot of ad-libbing. Some of it was written. Um, so there's a version of the film that exists without the voiceover, and there's a version, obviously, that came out with it. And, uh, you know, ultimately, it I think it really enhances the, the film overall, the themes and um, the psychology. Uh, but this was an example of how James, you know, continues to manipulate the material in post, and as he's not precious just to the original script. Um, the final rewrite is in post, and uh, uh, we were fortunate enough to, to work with some really good recordings from Brad. As we really developed the story, it became clear um, the fact that Roy plays kind of um he's reclusive how do you get into the mind of someone who's so stoic and so closed off i mean the film itself is about his awakening his catharsis and his metamorphosis into you know realizing what it is to be human you know reaching for the stars but knowing that what he has is right in front of him and he doesn't see it so the narration was something we added later um, as during the editing process, and that was a constant, fluid rewrite, um, being a collaboration between James and Brad Pitt and um, others, um, and it changed as we changed the story during the editing process. But ultimately, the goal was to get into Roy's head as best as we can, not to necessarily carry the the audience through of like why does this happen why does this happen but really to get interior into the psychology and
0: was it hard to keep a straight face as with Lee scratching the uh, scratch tracks for Brad Pitt and-
2: <laughs> I do I do a pretty good Brad Pitt impression oh I, you know? let's hear it I'm ready <laughs> James James actually James actually does an amazing Brad Pitt impression so he did an uh, anatomy Lee impression as well so he does he does all the voiceovers for us and the uh, the other thing for the voiceover we you know would recording it, we wanted to make it feel more like a stream of consciousness, like, to not be just narrating the film. Um, you wanted to to really feel like you're you're understanding what Brad is thinking about, and, and just one fun story, we had um, the first ADR session to record VoiceOver with Brad, uh, we had quite a few lines written down, and we were planning on taking, you know, half a day to do it, and he sat down, and he just went on a run for one hour, and he did it in one take in one hour, and it was... Just he just kept going. Nobody knew what he was going to do, but he just kept going, and it was amazing. But
1: this is this is a testament to James. You know the fact that he will do the rewrite. I mean, you've heard the script is the first stage production, is the second rewrite, and post production, the final rewrite. So um, the fact that the editing room for James is a blank canvas you know, empowers us as editors, empowers James as a filmmaker. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me that we would come up with ideas like that um, to make the film transcend uh, what it was on the page. Brad definitely improvised quite a lot. Some of it was written, some of it was improvised. And so that was one of the more challenging things to find the right words in the end and, and to craft the story as a whole with a, with a narration.
0: Talk to me about having to uh, edit that ad-libbed or improvised stuff, because then you're not just choosing your favorite take of a specific line. You're choosing your favorite line. You know, you're choosing content over just performance.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's something that was a great asset to have and also very challenging. He would come up with these great lines or James would come up with great lines and, 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 would kind of shift the way scenes would play and that would also affect other things around it so we were we were constantly re-editing rewriting uh lines to to make them fit as as smooth as possible and to just elevate each scene as we went along
0: one of the things that uh i spotted was a couple of video montages and even some audio montages did those were those written as montages, or were the they things that those things you guys had to condense from full, full scenes, or maybe some of each?
1: There wasn't anything I think that we like condensed um, or took bigger sequences and cut down. I mean, maybe the uh, swimming um, in the rocket coolant liquid underneath the rocket um, that probably changed from the way it was originally intended. And so uh, they're, you know, the natural part of the editing process. There were scenes that were cut down quite a bit. Um, some scenes towards the end were intercut. And that wasn't necessarily part of the original script. But um, the audio, you know, the whole sound design was so paramount to making the film work. And you hear um, some weird sound at the beginning of the film that sounds like blah, 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 and it's just this rhythm thing, and it's basically Tommy Lee Jones's character saying, "I love you, my son. I love you, my son. I love you, my son." And it, Gary Rydstrom did a wonderful job with the sound design and uh, used a lot of verbal uh, words and and stretched them, manipulated them into a drone-like design audio montage, if you would. And uh, so throughout the film, it, it you know we were not short of visually fascinating images and uh yeah part of the process was was to condense where we could Uh, since that that sonic landscape was
0: so important did it change when you got the final of that did it affect things or were you guys getting elements that you could put in as you went talk to me a little bit about sound design and kind of when it happened and what you guys did yourselves
2: um, being on a, a you know a larger budget studio film, uh, we did have the benefit to have a sound team. Or uh, Doug was able to um, to work with us while we were editing, and he was able to develop these sounds and and kick them out. And those those did affect um, certain certain points of of the story that we were editing. And and we would just kind of feed off of each other, and we'd come up with cool ideas, or he'd come up with amazing ideas, and we'd we'd extend the cut, or we'd we'd shorten the cut, or or we'd pace it out differently, um, because once you add sound, you add a whole other element to the the building of a scene, and um, it can it can make it feel very different.
1: So, um, Doug Murray was um, he started the film and was in house as was our post viz team. Uh, we had. Amazing post-vis uh, along with the pre but also Adam Avery was our um, VFX editor and it was just fascinating to be able to go down the hall and say hey we've got a new idea can you mock something up and in a few hours he would just not only do it but go beyond what we thought about I mean he would creatively add to the concepts and then we would take that and play with it and so, the whole post process was so fluid that way, where um, we were collaborating. And it was a very open editing room. I mean, I try to, when I work, I just encourage to have this open editing room, having um, Lee and I you know, go back and forth with ideas. But Scott Morris, who is our first assistant, and he then got additional editing credit on the film. Um, all the assistants uh, that were involved, um, we just encouraged ideas, and so from sound to visual effects and music, uh, Max Richter started composing very early, and that just—I always tell the composer, you know, when we're working, hey, if if there's something in the edit that doesn't quite work, and you want to musically do something, and want us to potentially change the edit. Um, I'm personally, I'm completely open to that, and I think that's what the editing process should be, is just a synergy of of all the departments working together for the best uh, film possible.
0: You mentioned Max Richter's score; it's very it's very
1: different. Uh, it's very electronic. Did you guys? Uh, there was it wasn't all Max. Um, that's the thing. I think some of the electronic stuff you heard. Um, there were more composers that were added at the end. I think the general themes and the minimalist music that's Max. So the more electronic stuff, um, uh, there were several other composers uh, credited on the film. Lauren and I think Robert uh, worked on them. Um, it was hard to keep track. <laughs>
0: Got it. Um, what were you guys, did you guys temp with stuff from Max
1: or was he delivering stuff as you went? I mean, we did, definitely. We we used a lot of Max um, from previous scores, from his own personal compositions. Um, I think for a while we used um, uh, Four Seasons. Uh, he did a, just a beautiful composition that we temped with at the beginning. James loves to temp with classical music, and we used a lot of Wagner. In the past, in other films, we used Pacini, who was a personal favorite of James, but this one seemed to be a very Wagner-heavy film, and um, Elaine Rodigue, um, she has uh, this almost, um, kind of this transcendent drone, and James definitely likes drones and minimalism, so, A lot of that was used throughout the film. And then Max came in and did his own themes. And just, I think it really, the film really evolved
2: once he got involved. We did um, have a little Pink Floyd in there for a while too. Yeah. For a while. For a while, we did. Yeah.
1: It was, um, we couldn't afford it. (laughs) So it was a non-starter anyway. Pink Floyd wasn't going to give it up
0: there were times when uh, you didn't use music where uh, I think you might have. There's an emotional message to Eve, uh, Roy leaves. And my recollection of that is there's no music under what you would think. Oh, let's put some emotional music under here. Can you talk about that decision?
2: I think it was, you know, we do like to use silence too throughout the film, um, being a journey through space. And there are parts that sometimes when when you don't have music, it's more raw and emotional and real and you know that's that's the idea Is we wanted we wanted to make the film very realistic and and as you go on this journey with him just kind of be in his head and, and feel what he's feeling and and not manipulate it so much as much with music um and kind of let the audience see it on brad's face and through his tone and his voice and things like that um to really help utilize the the idea of silence
1: Yeah, and and to further that point, I call it the S-word because the studio gets very nervous when you start um, proposing long stretches of silence. But it's a very brave thing to do, and especially when you're making a film about outer space where the silence is just deafening. And the whole idea is that Roy, um, his character, um, goes through this... Um, transformation in his isolation and that the silence itself causes him to reflect inward uh, and, and really to, to dive into a subconscious mind and for us to experience what space is um, and, and the idea of isolation. I mean, Lee and I have both worked on films that dealt with isolation. We worked on Papillon and Lost City of Z. And, um, you know, this is very hard to convey, um, especially when you're trying to get so interior to one's thought process. So towards the end of the film, we did employ much more stretches of silence. And, the you know, not having music on certain scenes, such as the one you mentioned, uh, The Message to Eve, was really just to, I think, to buck the trend of what's expected and uh, to punctuate certain scenes with more emotion by having less than having more.
0: I have dissolve. pit appears. I don't know what that, was there a Um, big, long dissolve?
1: Yeah, that was um, in The Journey to Neptune. Um, I mean, you know, towards the end of the process, Hank Corwin came on board, and he really worked on that whole sequence, The Journey to Neptune. That sequence had many different, Iterations. Uh, at first it was more lyrical, but as we put the film together, it became clear that we had to do, um, or the desire was really to demonstrate the fractured state of, of his psychology. And Hank is, I mean, he was very inventive and, and kind of took that whole sequence and went with it. And it does end with uh, an empty... Chair and it dissolves to show Roy uh, appear in it. And this is right before we reveal the planet of Neptune. The challenge was, like, how do you convey such a long journey and how arduous it is, uh, but not bore the audience (laughs) to death? So, you know, I have to... We have to give credit to Hank uh, for those ideas in in that particular sequence.
0: Like, on a lot of this movie you don't have the structure of dialogue to kind of carry you. Can you talk about the, the inventiveness of anything that you guys had to do or that Hank had to do to be able to carry some of those scenes that were largely,
1: hey, it's a journey, how do we, how do we portray this? Yeah, this is a tough one. I, look, I, when editing, I adhere to the philosophy that less is more. Um, I believe you can shape the best performances around what is not said, uh, you know, through more nuanced cues of facial expression and gesture. So, you know, and I think I can speak on behalf of Lee. I think the proud moments in the film as an editor is when we can craft something that transcends what is written and what is photographed uh, to achieve a compelling synergy of sound, music and performance to create heightened emotions. And that's one of the more challenging things to do. I mean, I I would say as as difficult as it was to edit, I mean, not difficult, but challenging to edit the Lunar Rover uh, chase sequence, that really did not compare to some of the more nuanced drama sequences where there wasn't much dialogue. That's, I think, really... Challenging as an editor and rewarding at the same time when we can pull something off that um, we don't have the written word and dialogue to structure around, and so it was very malleable because there were so many different ways we could do it, and we did keep experimenting with that. and And Brad just delivered such, um, you know, such a nuanced, subtle performance. And so rich with his own gestures and and thoughts, um, and and that was the goal, really, to get inside his head uh, without having to use much dialogue in those places. How did you two
0: collaborate, or you know, even with uh, Hank for that matter? But how did you guys collaborate as editors, uh, choosing who did what scenes, and then once scenes are chosen and cut, then Assembled into larger chunks, what are you, how are you breaking up responsibilities and deciding what, what stays and what doesn't?
2: As far as collaboration is a great word to describe the way that John and I work together. Um, we, from the, from daily's process, we each would grab a scene. We'd go through the process of, of editing the, the rough assembly together. And then right away we would show it to each other and to our, to our assistant editors and, and and we we'd get everybody's opinion and outside perspective on on what was working and what wasn't working and then and then sometimes we would trade scenes um just to try and different things out and and as we we moved through the process through the director's cut and James um you know we never we we never we never took uh you know um uh, what do you say responsibility of each scene by itself there I don't think there's a frame on the film that John and I did not touch equally, <laughs> so it's it's just a process that we continually kept working through, and and a very fluid process between John and I to allow uh, us to try and find the best scene possible and to to make it work as best as we could.
1: Yeah, it, it was like you know some editors on a editing team may say, okay, I'll do this part of the film, you do this part of the film, and um. You know, Personally, I think the film benefits with more brains <laughs> working on everything. And, and I think James appreciated that too. I mean, when we first, Lee and I first started working together with James on The Lost City of Z, it, it took James a little while to warm up to the idea of, hey, I've got two editors here. You know, I can work with one of you guys. I mean, a lot of times we would work both of us in the room and we would brainstorm. Either Lee or I were at the controls, depending on whose, whose room it was, and we would brainstorm uh, together with James, and if Lee was working and we were in his room, and I'd say, well, what about this? And James would say, great idea, go try it. And I'd disappear into my room, and then uh, James would later come in with Lee, and we'd work in my room for the rest of the day. You know, things like that. and. Um, uh, Scott Morris, who was our first assistant, and he got promoted to additional editor. He became very, very instrumental, um, especially towards the end of the process. He really got involved. So, in a way, there were there was more than just Lee and me. I mean, Hank and Scott, and uh, you know, I, I think it it ultimately made the film a better experience. We're not serving ourselves and our egos. We're serving the film so there's no pride of ownership of of certain things within the within the
2: movie and for one example i forgot john you and i uh john had the joy of um assembling the the uh the rover chase at first because he got to he got to go to the desert uh (laughs) he drove the short end of the stick but during the process i remember at one point uh james was like you know what lee let's just to explore different options and things i had some ideas and things like that and and i I spent a whole week by myself just coming up with different ideas for the scene and and in it was great that you know James and and, and John and you know allowed that ability to just be like I'm going to try a lot of different things because this sequence can be can be pretty much whatever we want to create since it's mostly visual effects and through that process we 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 could make whatever we wanted to and so it was it was fun to have the experience just to be like okay do whatever you want to create whatever you think could be the best and then you know, eventually we'd we'd watch it, and we'd all say, "Oh, this is something really cool you did," you know, or this is something else. We can we can pick and choose different things that help elevate every scene.
0: Uh, and we talked a little bit about it, but that um, that idea of collaborating with a director who writes, um, uh, I cut a, a bunch of movies with a guy that writes his own movies, and you would think that that being precious with their words would be high on the list, but I know it's not for for uh, Alex, the director I work with, and it sounds like not for you guys either.
1: Yeah, I mean, certain directors um, that I've worked with, uh, I mean, I remember early in my career, I worked with a director who will go unnamed, um, but I would show him the cut, and he said... It's like, yeah, but you, you cut out two words. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, because they're not quite necessary and it makes it, And he just was insistent on being word for word to the script that he wrote. But, um, you know, just knowing the possibilities and potential of what we can do and post. Yeah. Uh, I do think most directors, even those who have written, uh, he or she would. Welcome the idea of improving or in a way transforming what was on the page because you can't necessarily convey nuance very well in a script. I mean, it's it's different. I mean, this is why some novels may not necessarily translate well into movies. Um, it's just a different medium. You know, the the actors themselves. I mean, they bring their own interpretation to it, and so. I think the best-laid plans of a writer-director uh, immediately goes out the window when you start collaborating with your actors and and to see what they can bring to the themes of a movie and and their own ideas. I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Joaquin Phoenix is a prime example. I mean, he's he's such a method actor and brilliant, and uh, every time, I mean, James Gray, we did, I mean, James, I think, has done four films with him, and I did three with him, and it, you know, what Joaquin brings to it just, you know, I keep using the word transcends, but, I mean, I think that's the best word to describe it. it, it just elevates the material to a whole third dimension, that pops off the page
0: i just interviewed the joker editor and he said the same thing about him just incredible performances and a huge range and great technical skill narration yeah i'm shocked that the narration was not a big part of this movie when it was originally written i am shocked
1: well it you know but it's not something that should be um I mean, you shouldn't necessarily lead with that because, I mean, I think it's a good thing. I do think that it's, you know, again, it's like what makes the film work. Um, you throw out the blueprints. And, I mean, there's a version of the movie without the, the narration, without hearing his thoughts.
0: It's, it's an internal monologue more than it really is. It's an internal reason. monologue,
1: so it's not really narration. But yeah. it, it just, you know, the, the film works without it, but it's a different movie. So it it wasn't like the 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 internal monologue throughout the film uh, saved the picture. It just was an additive layer that helped us convey the themes we wanted to convey. It was actually very liberating because things that audiences weren't fully understanding. I mean, th- there's so many high concepts in this, and with technology and. Um, with the psychology of it all, some things that, you know, we were able to truncate scenes and, and parts of scenes that was, I think, purely expository and you know just to set up why this person does this, why this character thinks this way, and um, it, it helped us to condense in so many ways, but it was just an added layer, the way that music is, the way that sound is.
2: Um, I think, in the overall scheme of things, the the entire film was was extremely complicated as far as uh, editorial goes, um, because we had so many different things to deal with. Whether it was the Dubai chase, whether it was the the solitude and the quietness, and and to find the right balance through editing to make the movie soar to to where it could it could go was was very rewarding at the end of the process. Um, we, you know, it's it's a rarity these days to work on a film with this large of a budget, but really be an internal art house type movie, and to 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 balance those elements was 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 challenging, but also a lot of fun. I mean, not too many times do we get to to edit a shootout on the moon, or a zero g gravity fight, or a fall from a huge tower, and and all at the same time be inside to get a, such an amazing performance out of a, of an actor that uh, just took it to a whole nother level and and he, with his subtleties. And so for us, that was just the joy of, of being able to work on a film like this. And we hope they do keep making these types of films. It,
1: it's got a lot of commercial elements. Um, obviously, we want the biggest audience possible uh, watching it, but, um, you know, it's got a lot of uh, more boutique or art house elements as well but it you know I think that with sequels and everything out these days um, there isn't a whole lot that's just purely original and studios um, I think do tend to possibly be a bit cautious I mean it's a huge investment uh, any type of film. So I, Lee and I were just eternally grateful to be able to work um, with such a, a broad canvas and really to be able to to shape the film in many different ways in the editing process. It's it's why the, the editing on this film um, took a while because uh, there are so many moving parts and then visual effects. Alan Maris, who is our visual effects producer, just went above and beyond the Call of Duty because uh, visual effects were as expensive as they are. They were part of the, the process to fully develop the film. The, the whole sequence, the lunar rover chase, um, you know, worked uh, as scripted, but it became clear that it was, it was too claustrophobic, we needed geography, um, and so we added those uh, above angle, the high angle shots looking down which not only helped clarify geography, but it also heightened the tension, You know, to see these pirate rovers uh, encroaching upon our hero rover. And, um, and all of this was in the editing process. And that, that's what was such a joy, is that it wasn't just paint by numbers. We were truly creating as we went along. I don't
0: know how to describe it, but it seems like a very, like, a movie that could literally go any way. I mean, like the editing of it seems like you could have spent much more time on the you know, the trip to Mars or the trip from here to there, or kind of you know shoe leather or letting it be. Hey, we need to know that this guy. It's taking this guy months to get someplace, and. Yeah it seems like the editing possibilities in this particular film, and I don't know how to describe it because all films of course are like that. The editing possibilities are endless. This one seems especially
1: endless. It was, it was, it was like the void of space. I mean, there was a vacuum of space. It just, and honestly, if they gave us more time, uh, the editing would continue. Uh, it it really, I mean, I'll let Lee take this from here, but yeah, it, it, it was, um, there were infinite
2: possibilities. We did have to get from point A to point B eventually, but throughout that journey, there were lots of different turns and a lot of different options. And, and, and there were things that we removed and things that we added um, to, to hopefully convey the, the overall scope of the film and the feelings um, between how what brad was going through and how how that relayed to himself and and also in the bigger picture of how humanity and space travel and and looking inward and finding yourself on on a journey that uh you would not expect to go on out to neptune but but you are correct there are many different ways to 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 edit this
0: film when you think about vfx especially for a film that's You know, uh, kind of a cut-and-dried effects film where you say, hey, look, here's the effects sequence, I'm going to cut it early in dailies, and I'm going to deliver it to the effects house, and they're going to do it, and it's going to be done. That does not sound like what happened with you guys.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, and and for example, the the falling tower sequence at the beginning, um, once we started to get the visual effects in for that, um, we were, everybody was in love with it and thought it was fantastic. So, Uh, it had a lot of different elements and one of those elements for that sequence was a skydiver that would go up as high as he could and jump and 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 so we actually had to send him back out to to do some more jumping (laughs) to add more of the elements for the falling and to to extend the the moment even more to so it's like things like that by having expanding the schedule allowed us to make things even that much better which we we use that to our benefit.
1: Yeah, it wasn't until we started screening for test audiences, and and they loved the sequence, and it's like, okay, you know, let's expand it. It wasn't, uh, it, you know, they wanted more, and so, um, and and those were very difficult VFX to to uh, get right. Um, so yeah, it, it just it wasn't nothing was cut and dry, and I think that allowed us to. Um, you know, bring the film to the place where it wound up.
0: Yeah. I talked to somebody else that was said that there was a visual effect in their movie that when audiences saw it, they were like, wait, don't turn on, don't cut to the next shot. We got to look at this for a while, you know? You don't know those things until, you know, when you guys are cutting it, you know, you're looking maybe at a graphic that says, you know, wide shot goes here or something, but, you know, maybe some previs, but you don't know it's going to be something you want to watch for 20 seconds until you see the final shot.
1: Yeah. I, you know, it was, um, it was very illuminating. I mean, working on such a visual effects heavy show, but as you said, the visual effects weren't all preplanned because you're dealing with outer space and, and the story itself evolving the way it did. So, um, Uh, Alan Maris, I mean, he stayed with us (laughs) to the very end and and just allowed us uh, and James and Brad and um, everyone involved just to work with this canvas to to, to let the movie uh, transcend to new heights. And every day we worked in the editing room uh, with James and uh, it just made the film better and better.
0: Lee, John, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you talking to me about this movie. Good luck on your next projects. Thank you so thank much. You very much. Thanks, Steve. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye. We'll talk there. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out provideocoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guests, John Axelrad, ACE, and Lee Haugen. I'm Steve Holfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a like, leave a comment, or make sure to tell a filmmaking friend. We'll be right